0: Radioinfluence.com. The future is now. You are sitting ringside with David Penzer on Radio Influence. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of Sitting Ringside. My name is David Penzer. We are so happy that you are back once again to listen to this thing that we call a podcast and we have some interesting stories that I really think you're going to like about the territory days and we're going to welcome legendary referee Tommy Young. I have you know, I got I got now that I've been doing this uh for about uh 18 months, I got to tell you it's some of the uh, best interviews that we've uh, done are with referees because they tell us, see aside and tell aside. You know, a wrestler goes out; they have one match or one feud. A referee goes out; they do two or three or four matches a night, so they have a different perspective and uh, a lot, a lot of stories. So, uh, 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 Tommy Young's a great guy, and I uh, really think you will enjoy it. So, stay tuned for that. I have not opined recently on the state of professional wrestling or anything to do with the wrestling business, and that is partly because (laughs) there's not a lot going on, uh, really. Uh, But I know there's a little bit of controversy with Monday Night Raw and the ratings situation there. Uh, I will agree with one Jimmy Jacobs, uh, who made the point this week on social media uh, this past week that it is extremely hard to produce three hours of live television television a week, of, and then another two uh, on SmackDown to boot. So really five hours is the point he made. But j- take take SmackDown away. It's hard to do three hours of live television a week uh, and a pay-per-view so you're really doing three, six, nine, twelve, fifteen. Just if you're talking Monday Night Raw, you're doing fifteen hours of uh, of episodic matches and stuff. And you know you only have a certain amount of guys on the roster, and you got to make it interesting. And there's no excuse. Uh, you know, no excuse. They could be a little bit more creative in some of the things that they do, but, you know, Roman Reigns goes down and we wish him the best and and, and you got to totally rewrite plans and, you know, somebody else gets hurt. I think Finn Balor just got hurt or is sick or, you know, you got to totally rewrite what you're doing and it's a constant struggle to continue to put out Interesting product, and so while I feel for the fans who aren't enjoying said product and have started to tune out ratings-wise, I do feel for the promotion as well. Uh, It's not easy, and it's some to the best of times. It's not easy. At the worst of times, it's uh, so frustrating. You want to put your head in the sand and uh, you know go away for a while. So. Uh, just a little perspective on that from someone who's been on both sides as a fan watching and as somebody who's been involved in producing and writing and ring announcing and all that good stuff. Uh, I will tell you what, I love Daniel Bryan's green character. I love it. I love it. I love it. I've always said the best characters are shoots because you're not playing somebody. You're, you might be taking your opinions or your thoughts or your hobbies and making them taking them to the extreme like daniel bryan's doing with this character but that's how he really feels he's one of these green guys and as you know he's a vegan and and cares about the you know global warming and and carbon emissions and i'm not saying that's not important i'm just saying to him it's really important it's something that he's really into and so to make it over the top into a heel character uh I think is tremendously entertaining. And, uh, you know, I don't know if that's something that they just lucked into or something that they've been planning, but, uh, kudos for that. I would suggest if you want more interesting television, uh, for the WWE, as hard as it is to produce five hours of live TV a week, uh, play more off of people's real life, uh, characters. And it's a lot easier to be yourself to all the way at a 10 or an 11 is spinal tap would say than it is to be somebody else, uh, that is writing for you that you really don't feel. So just a little bit of uh, opinion of what's going on in the world of professional wrestling. Uh, interesting time this time of year and uh, getting ready for the Royal Rumble, which is my favorite pay-per-view of the year. So, and then we head to the road to WrestleMania. So we'll be talking more about that as 2018 turns into 2019 and as the road to WrestleMania begins. But right now, I uh, want to talk to a legendary referee, someone whose career was cut. Premature, due to no fault of his own and somebody who I hope will entertain you with the stories of his career and working for Jim Crockett Promotions during some of the greatest matches, the Ric Flair Ricky Steamboat Series, the Ric Flair Terry Funk Series, uh, that, pretty much Ric Flair and anybody, the Ric Flair Dusty Road Series. So uh, you get my point. Uh, he was Ric Flair's favorite referee. And I'm sure he'll tell a Ric Flair story or two. So please welcome to City Ringside legendary referee Tommy Young. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, when I was in college in the 1980s and somebody would ask me who's the greatest wrestler of this era, I would say Paul Kogan or Ric Flair. And when somebody would ask me who is the greatest referee, there was no. Thinking about it. It was hands down my guest this week on City Ringside. I'm so honored to have him. He does not do these a lot, and uh, I think this is going to be so much fun. Please welcome legendary referee Tommy Young. Tommy, welcome to City Ringside.
1: Thank you much, David. It's good to talk to you, brother.
0: So before we get into some of the fun stuff that you did in uh, Jim Crockett Promotions and Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling, let's go back to the beginning. Uh, If Wikipedia and the internet is to believe, uh, and sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't, um, you started out as a wrestler. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, yeah. I broke in in uh, 1973. In the Detroit area. I've mentioned this in other interviews that I've done. Yeah, the guy uh, training uh, people in that area was a guy named Lou Klein. If you, uh, if you, the page that they've got on me and out on the Internet, it says I was trained by Lou Fez. I was not trained by Lou Fez. I was trained by a man named Lou Klein. And uh, he's legendary in the tr- Detroit area. And, uh, but, yeah, I never had any intentions of being a referee, never paid any attention to the referee. It was all quite by accident.
0: We'll get to that in a minute i'm assuming uh if you broke in in Detroit that you were a fan of uh the sheikh's promotion out there
1: The Sheikh was the promoter at that time the original sheikh the real sure. the real sheikh the the iron Sheikh wasn 't even a sheikh he's he 's from iran and if if you know anything about the people over there uh iranians aren 't even arabs they 're Persians, and uh they don 't get along with the Arabs at all. And it was ironic because he was uh, teaming up with the other guy. I think he called himself Al Kaisi. I think he uh, he was supposedly was an Iraqi, which I think is what that man is. But uh, yeah. naturally, naturally, uh, the Sheikh Qaz, as we used to call him, and Kaisi should have been bitter enemies because Kaisi was Iraqi. <laughs> and then, and uh, the sheik was Iranian and those two countries fought an 8 year war all through the 80s. So that was kind of ironic. That really.
0: was that was when uh, there was only thirty minutes of national news a night uh, from six thirty to seven o'clock Eastern Time, and you didn't have a twenty-four hour news cycle to point out the obvious. Uh, but yeah, but Adnan El Casey was a uh, shoot Olympic uh, wrestler out of Iraq. You are correct, and um, and and Kaz, uh, uh, who's one of the funniest guys. Um, still haven't figured out if he's funny on purpose or not, but one of the funniest guys in the business, um, uh, he he's was not, he's not, <laughs> he's, uh, he, he's, he's not, he's, he's funny not without so. trying to be funny, but, um, but, uh, uh, he was a, uh, uh, he was a, uh, a guard, uh, bodyguard for the Shah.
1: The Shah, that's Supreme. right. The Shah of Iran. Yeah. The but, one that, <laughs> that caused us all the trouble between us and Iran that's been going on yeah. since, uh, since 1980 it, or so.
0: Totally getting off anything that has to do with professional wrestling, but do you remember that that, uh, that, that, because we're both kind of news junkies, we spoke about this before, do you remember that that whole, um, that whole, the, the Shah of Iran and the, uh, holding the hostages for all those days, not only did it sink a president's, uh, presidential, uh, career back in the 80s, uh, although Jimmy Carter seems like a nice guy, but, uh, it, it, it gave Ted Koppel the beginning of Nightline. That's how Nightline line started do you remember that i
1: remember it very well and uh because i used to watch it a lot back then uh, yeah i remember all that because uh it started in 79 and virtually the whole year that may have been that may have been what beat jimmy carter although I think he would have lost anyway because we weren't doing real good economically, and Ronald Reagan was extremely popular. But that situation uh, where they took our people hostage for... Oh gosh! How long was it? Was it a year? Over a year? It was over a year
0: there. because uh, Nightline was what well, didn't start as Nightline. It started as uh, Hostage Day, uh, you know, Day Fifty One, and then Day One Hundred and Seventeen, and then Day, you know, mm. and, and finally when the hostages came back, everybody wondered what they were going to do, and they started Nightline. Which because Ted Koppel had that built-in audience that was used to seeing his nightly report at eleven thirty about the. Uh, the 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 hostage crisis but uh I, I don't remember so much about the uh about uh the economics during Jimmy Carter cuz i was in 4th grade but uh, uh <laughs> I, I i think i got to take a vacation with my family every year to marco island so uh so life didn't suck for oh. me but uh, uh so um but we're talking about uh the original sheik ed farhat uh, and mm-hmm. uh, did you That's get him. did you get to work for him? How is he as a promoter? I know as a wrestler he's pretty uh, out there.
1: Well, you know, I really didn't come in contact with him that much. Different states have different uh, commissions when it comes to wrestling. Uh, Ohio didn't even have one. You didn't even need a, uh, a license to, to wrestle or referee in Ohio. In Michigan, you did. And uh, the Sheik had a number of referees that he would use for his big house shows in Michigan. But the tapings that he did for his TV show, he almost never did them in Michigan. They were usually in Ohio in a town called Lima. And uh, I was doing all his TV uh, it was just one of those things. One night, uh, one of the wrestlers didn't show up. They didn't know what to do. Excuse me. The referee right. did not show up. And I told him, you know, I got a basic understanding of the profession. Scratch my match. It doesn't mean anything. I'll do it. And um, I'll tell you, when it came to wrestling, I I was just off I mean, I I knew I was. I did not have it, and I knew I wasn't going to make it. I was just wrestling a little bit part-time, rotating wrestling around my job, not my job around wrestling. Right. And it was a relaxed atmosphere back then. They'd call me at work, and you work tonight. Uh, Had a lot of shows around the area. They'd call them spot shows, high schools, you know, for fundraisers, things like that. So smaller shows where you wouldn't have that many uh, big name wrestlers. They're usually just one event, one main event, and about four or five underneath matches. So I, I was doing that, but uh, that was about it. And then just by chance, by the grace of God, uh, it was Canton, Ohio, where the Pro Football Hall of Fame is, and uh, never had refereed a match in my life never paid any attention to the referee nothing it wasn't like I sat home and I'm going to revolutionize refereeing I never did any of that this was something that was just strictly spontaneous it just happened I got in the ring and where I was pretty much lost as a wrestler I was totally in control as a referee because for one thing you're not working with somebody else it's just you right and uh anyway, I was I was tailor made for it. And at the end of the evening several guys came up to me and said, You know, you're a natural at this. Why don't you start doing more refing and less wrestling? We need good reps, Tommy. And the promotion kinda seemed to think it too. And they like I said, they started using me for almost all their, their tapings. I was doing all their tapings and uh yeah, uh, you know, little by little, more and more reffing, uh less and less wrestling. I think I did my final match. I think I worked with a guy named Chris Markoff in a town in Ohio in 1975. That, I think that was my last official match as far as wrestling is concerned. It was strictly refereeing pretty much from then on.
0: Tommy, let me ask you a question. When that Faithful Night happened and they needed a referee and they said, Hey, kids you ever ref a match, did you did you fib and say yes, yeah, sure I've ref a the match?
1: They never asked me that. <laughs> they simply they were lost. They the, didn't know what to do. The rep wasn't there. They they didn't have a referee. I just said my match doesn't mean anything. Why don't you have me wrap the show? The Though reason uh, they didn't ask me if I could do it or not. They figured, well, if he can get ring and wrestle, he can sure and get in and referee. Yeah.
0: The reason I bring it up <laughs> is uh, is not because I want to uh, call you a liar. But uh, it's it's funny because we've done this for about a year and a half every week. And we have all kinds of guests. We have wrestlers, wrestling legends, up and coming wrestlers, women wrestlers, announcers, referees, behind the scenes people. Um, and in, in almost every story. There comes a point to where the person in that I'm interviewing has to make a decision whether they should lie to get to their break or whether they should tell the truth. And uh, and, and almost like almost 100 percent of the time uh, they tell a fib. So you're the first person Not- to actually tell the truth. So congratulations. You win a prize. Well, that's ironic. I never heard
1: anybody say that before. I, uh, you know, I mean, it doesn't, your break doesn't really mean anything if you can't perform. You've still got to get in the ring and do it, and you can lie all you want, but if they say you're just, if they can see that you're just awful... You ain't going to go anywhere. No, no. You're not going to go anywhere. I want to speak properly. Where I know some people are listening to this. You shouldn't say ain't. So, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you're not going to get work if you can't perform, just like in anything. And uh, I just fit right in. I, like I said, it was a gift from God. I never dreamed that I would uh, referee full-time, make a living in it. I did it 15 years. Would have done it longer if I uh, hadn't gotten the unfortunate injury that I did.
0: We'll get to that. How, how how'd, you get it? how'd you make your way down to uh, Mid-Atlantic and Jim Crockett Promotions? Well, uh, in 1975,
1: right at the beginning of it, A new organization was forming. It was called the IWA, which was International Wrestling Association. Or maybe it was Alliance. I don't know. I think it was Association, IWA. And they were forming. And uh, I was also, at the time, I was uh, doing uh, the Saturday TV for a guy named Johnny Powers, who was kind of like a, uh, a... a promoter under the chic he was uh promoting the uh cleveland akron ohio area and uh they would do their uh taping on saturday in a little town called parma they had a tv studio there and you know, have the people inside like the way we used to do it at wral and uh, raleigh you know a little studio audience and right. have the matches there and and uh these same people got involved with a man named Eddie Einhorn Eddie Einhorn I was going to say yeah he used to be involved with the Chicago White Sox yes, and uh basketball tvs that was his thing back then uh he wrest- he loved wrestling and wrestling was like a toy with him he came up for the with the money, and uh, these same people, Powers, a guy named Pedro Martinez and his son Ronnie, they were also working with Powers. The Sheik was not involved in this. This was strictly uh, the Cleveland people, and uh, and they knew me. And uh, our opening taping, as I recall, was late January of 1975. Uh, we were going to have the first taping in Savannah, Georgia, which is about a thousand miles from Detroit. Sure. And uh, and I was going down there. I was going to drive my vehicle and take a couple of guys. One guy's name was Jim Lancaster, who's still an old friend of mine. Uh, the other guy's name was Joe Maddie. I don't know whatever happened to Joe. I lost touch with him many years ago. And we were going down. I was going down to what uh, to do jobs, so to speak, to wrestle. Right. And the same thing happened. They needed I a referee. got there for the taping. Excuse me? They needed a referee. Exactly. They didn't have one. And uh, Ronnie Martinez, Pedro's to well, Tommy can ref. God, he was doing all our refing at the tapings. Uh, so Tommy, who was supposed to be going down there and just doing some jobs, went out and got a referee shirt and did all the matches. And um, the rest was... You know, I, I went from there, became their head referee, and I was also involved in their books and pictures. A guy named George Cannon, he's he's passed away now, uh, used to uh, manage the kangaroos, the, uh, the fabulous kangaroos. Uh, he lived across the border from me in a town called Windsor, Ontario, uh, Canada. And I used to go over and get the books and pictures from him. He would make them up, and I'd bring, sneak them over to the country. Sometimes I'd get caught and I'd have to turn around and go back because, <laughs> you know, you're going from Canada to America, and sure. they want you to pay duty on that stuff. So I, I was always able to sneak them in somehow. So I was uh, I, I was really busy back then. I, I'd be doing the uh, selling of the books and pictures up until uh, intermission when they were starting to do their house. And then an in intermission, I'd close down, charge back to the dressing room, put my referee stuff on, and do the main events. Wow. I was busy, brother. They worked me, but I loved it.
0: I believe Mil Mascaris was their first champion. Is that correct?
1: Mil Mascaris was. I used to keep his... Uh used to keep the belt with me, just just take it home, because he didn't want to lug it around, so I kept <laughs> it in my car, because my car was always down there, because I was lugging the books and pictures around with me. And sometimes I'd go and pick up a cannon at the airport or whatever, but uh, yeah, staying busy, I was even, uh, we even did a little segment, we only did, I think, Three or I think there were four books that we did, maybe it was three, I think it was four, where I was, uh, we were doing a segment called Know Your Holds with uh, uh, myself, uh, yours truly, Tommy Young, and Al Costello, one of the kangaroos, right. and boy, Al was stretching me every which way that he could for these different things, <laughs> that was a little tough, but it, it was quite an experience, it, probably the most fun I ever had in wrestling was 1975. IWA only lasted uh, one year, but that was quite a year for me. I loved it.
0: Yeah, they traveled all over the country. Uh, it's funny. Pretty
1: much, yeah. It's yeah. funny
0: you mentioned about the, the Mil Mascarist and... Want the belt. It's funny, you know, uh, I can't only speak for myself, but I find as I look back on my uh, entry and career in pro wrestling that it, it wasn't like I got smartened up overnight. It was like different levels of getting smartened up before I finally got it the whole entire thing, uh, so when I was in Florida doing indie shows, sure, I knew you know you know I knew that you know it, you know it, you know everybody was friendly and and you know telling a story and working together, and I knew all that. when I finally went up to w c w as sort of like a stooge uh, before I got the ring announcer job, I'll never forget. Because back in the Indies in in Florida where I worked, if you got a title, that was like an honor. You could say that, you know, you were the Florida heavyweight champion or the the Southern tag team champions or whatever. Uh, You know, but I'll never forget when I got to WCW and they told the Steiners they were winning the world tag team titles. And they looked at uh, the Booker, whoever it was at the time, probably Ole Anderson, and they said, I don't want to carry those frickin' belts around. Give them to somebody else. Boom! A light bulb went off in my head. That was like the last light bulb, and it was like nobody gives a crap up here about that. No, maybe Flair did, and you know maybe some people did, uh, but but uh, the it just it's funny how you say that because light that final light bulb went off in me, and you know truly nobody, you know very few people really care. Uh, it's just about making a living.
1: Well, now I'm going to have to totally contradict you there, because that is not true. I mean, if anybody knew how the guys felt about those belts, it was me, because I'd go back and forth each dressing or more, you know, if the dressingers were the same. Nobody wanted to lose their belt unless it some belt that was more of a pain in the ass to have, and there weren't many belts like that. Now maybe it I was mean, the U.S. Nobody,
0: maybe it was the U.S. Tag Team well, Championship. Well, I mean, the
1: Steiners. I understand what you're <laughs> saying. <They're, laughs> those two are very unique, Roddy yeah. and, and, and Scotty. They yeah. are two unique individuals, but but most guys. You know, it there's a, a certain amount of prestige involved. I mean, especially if it's the world tag belts or if it's the world singles title. That is a very, very sure. uh, significant thing. And nobody really wants to drop that belt. So to a lesser degree, you're right. But most guys... They didn't want to lose their belts. Most guys really didn't even want to do a job. I mean, they do them, of course. Everybody had to do them. But you'd rather win than lose. And, of course, some guys, you know, it would be more important than others. There were there were some guys in this business who would rather make $1,000 a week and, and uh, get their hand raised every night than make $2,000 a week and get beat every night. Yep common sense would tell you let's make the 2000 who cares if we get beat yep. but some guys were like that i mean greg valentine was one god he couldn't stand to lose a match <laughs> neither could a guy named uh, crusher jerry blackwell these are nice guys mind you but they just hated doing jobs there was a guy up in Detroit named Fred Curry. He was a, a shrimp. He was about 170 pounds, and he never wanted to lose to anybody. He was the son of Wild Bull Curry. He uh, sure. was one of the <laughs> most legendary guys I've ever known in wrestling. So well, I, wrestling, just like everything else, you've yeah. got tremendous personalities going every which way.
0: I do stand corrected. I didn't mean to. Uh, certainly didn't mean to say that nobody cared. It was just. It was just ironic when I heard the Steiners and maybe it was the U.S. Tag Team Titles bitching and moaning about having to carry the belts around. It just. Uh, it just. Uh, it's an experience I'll never forget. That's interesting. But you. But you're. That, cor- that is interesting. But you're yeah, correct. Yeah. I mean, guys like the Midnight <laughs> Express and you know uh, people like that. They really, uh, they really appreciated that the notoriety that the, the the belts and the championships gave them. So, and of course, you know the world title. You're absolutely right. Going back old school, I don't know that people that didn't live through the 70s and 80s or 60s, 70s, and 80s, even before that, can understand how important the NWA world title, to a lesser extent, the WWF and AWA world titles were.
1: The ones we had mostly. Uh, of course, the world belt was you know that moved around the country wherever the whether it was uh, Dory or Terry or, or Jack Briscoe or, or flair or whoever I mean you you have to go everywhere to defend the belt, different territories but uh, in in this area where I used to work for the Crocketts, uh, we had the world 's belts, but we also had the mid Atlantic tag teams champions, and nobody really wanted those belts that much because the fans, everybody knew they were one step below. So they weren't the most popular belts in the world. So there's there's a degree of of, uh, truth in what you said earlier, you know. uh, We also had the Mid-Atlantic Heavyweight Champion singles title. That was fairly important, but then we had the TV Championship which nobody really wanted.
0: <laughs> Art Anderson. But, uh, but, Art Anderson, the world TV champion.
1: Well, we got a lot of money out of it. The problem was they they put the belt on, on a guy named Paul Jones, who used to work here. Right. And here was a guy that was notoriously lazy, didn't want to do anything in the ring, especially if it was a small show and the promoter wasn't around. You know, he'd work harder if the promoter was there, but if the promoter was not there, he didn't want to cheat the fans, you know, and not not perform and not not, not do his his his, uh, his 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 night's work, because that particular belt, the TV belt, the way we always did it, the first fifteen minutes of it were only up for right. the title, so you'd get away with losing. but you could always lose after the 15 minutes, sure. You know. Sure, so. 18 minutes
0: and but you, lose, mean, you lose, but you, know, but you keep the or time. Or
1: 16, whatever. Yeah. But, but he used to do something that used to really cause the problem between he and I. As soon as I'd give the guys their instructions, and, you know, back when I was a referee, I brought the guys to the center and did it just like they do now for, for you know, those world uh, killer matches that they have and boxed. To sure. you know you bring everybody to center, give them the rules and stuff and 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 i I always did that as as opposed to just guys getting in the ring and do it you try to make it as official as 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 you can so i I did my best in that way, but we uh but Jones he he a lot of times would tell me as soon as you get done with the uh, instructions and we're going back to our corner, call for the bell and and he still got his stuff on. So I call for the bell. So when I call for the bell, the time starts. So he starts slowly taking off his jacket, and then the opponent will come over to me. Is he going to take it off or not? He put it back on again. You get him back. Jones would want to do this for 10 or 11 minutes. <laughs> Just keep taking the jacket off, and then – and I'm kind of sneaking a peek to see what the oh he's coming get him back in and I'm looking around and the people are getting totally disgusted because you know they paid their money sure they they want to they want to see some action and Jones is just trying to get out of work. Now so I know where Larry yeah.
0: Zabisco got it from.
1: Well, I don't want to touch that with Larry so much. He, he, he was certainly uh, a harder worker than Jones. but, but that, and, and one time I, I said, all right, stop the match. Stop the time. And what are you doing? You're killing my heat. I said, brother, you don't have any heat. All you've got is disgust. I said, wow. look at the people. They're, not, they're pissed off. It's one thing to get them upset. It's another thing to disgust them. Sure. And you, there's a big difference between the two. You disgust them. There's a good chance they're not coming back. But this was simply a guy who didn't want to do his job. He didn't care about about, you know, Given the fans, their money's worth or anything. Whereas guys like Steamboat Flair, you never had to worry about them. Ivan Koloff, guys that just worked their tails off. There are other guys that were like that, but I I don't want to mention names too much. I've already mentioned Jones. He's deceased now. I probably wouldn't have said that if he was still alive. But I mean, uh, you know, different. Everybody's different. You learn different styles. I tell young referees that come up to me to talk to me and always remember that, uh, you know, it's it's our job to make their job easier and, um, and it's so much easier when you've wrestled and then you're basically a failed wrestler. I've never really called myself that, but that's really what I am. I'm a failed wrestler that fell into refereeing just by accident and came to love it. It was my niche. Sure. And, uh, so I, that that's basically the way it was with me i was just doing more and more of that and i would tell young wrestler uh, referees too that as you get to know these people you learn the different styles everybody's got a different style you don't work the same way with every single guy different people want different things and sometimes you're not doing much. Other times you're doing everything. It just depended on the individual. It was a lot of fun. I I still miss it.
0: I know at one point uh, you are pretty much a mainstay in, in Jim Crockett and Mid-Atlantic, but I know at one point, because I was watching, uh, that you ended up for uh, – I wanna say six months to a year in uh championship wrestling from Florida. Uh what was the reason that they sent you down there? Was there one? And uh what were your experiences there?
1: Well there certainly was a reason. This was when Ole took over for George Scott. <laughs> and uh Oli It always took comes back not. to
0: Ole Anderson, huh?
1: To a degree, at least this does, because <laughs> you asked me about a high one up in Florida. Oli was coming in, and we had the same three referees that we'd had for a while me, Sonny Fargo, and another guy named Stu Schwartz. Sure. And, um,. Schwartz had worked in Florida before, but he's another guy that got a lot of heat with a lot of people. And I, he apparently he screwed around in the ring with a guy named Billy Robinson, who was from England. Right. And this was a guy that I guess trigger-tempered. You, you don't screw around with him. And Stu did something. I don't know what it was. And this guy beat the hell out of Stu right, Stu right in the ring. Oh Jesus! his ass right in the ring. And then, uh, apparently, when the guy came back to the dressing room, Stu tried to jump him from behind, and he beat the hell out of Stu a second time. Well, anyway, me, Stu, and Sonny were already up here working. We were basically the three guys. And uh, Florida had a guy named Bill Alfonso. Right. He was the main guy down there, and Ole wanted to bring him in here. But to do that, he, he had to win Florida, You know, one of our referees, and only wanted to get some new blood in here. And the first that was supposed to go was Stu Schwartz, Uh, supposed to go for two months. Uh, We're going to get Fonzie for six, uh, two me, two Stu, and two Fargo, six months. Okay, uh, Stu just said, I'm not going. He had the problem with Robinson and uh, the whole office. It was a bad thing. He just left, and he I'm not going. Okay, you're not going. You're off for two months. And um, so uh, I was next, you know, because Stu wouldn't go. And I remember I went into the office. Ole says, well, I suppose you don't want to go either. Well, Oli was about as popular with me as a tetanus shock. <laughs> I had no desire to be here. I knew that Ole was gonna destroy the territory <sighs> eventually and I thought, Hey, just tell me when I start oh, I was happy to get out of here so because it was chaos. A lot of people didn't like Ole. But he just taken over and Jimmy was gonna go with him, Jimmy Crockett. So they sent me down there and uh That's when I first met Dory Funk. Dory was the booker down back then. And Johnny Weaver told me, he said, uh, "I told uh, Dory you were coming, but I hope we get you back because Tommy, once he sees you, he's not going to want to let you go." Sure. And uh, that was very nice that Johnny said that because Johnny Weaver was a great performer. I loved uh, working with him, and uh, worked I worked down there for Dory, and Dory loved me, and uh, because I did stuff that he'd never had other referees do, I just I really got. In, to what I was doing. Yeah, you did. And I would. I'm
0: sorry. I said, Yeah, you did. I'm, I'm agreeing with you. And I, I did
1: things that that really just happened by chance. Uh, I used to jump over the guys and slide across the ring and a couple times I slid out of the ring and hit the floor with a thud <laughs> and banged my hip up and then I got to the point, you know, this this is a good spot but you don't want to do it too often, you know, because you can get banged up and, and you can overdo that thing and it can get old just like anything else. There was another thing. I did this in the IWA. It was a natural thing that you no. Know, the referee did. We had a guy named Eric the red who was about 325 pounds, maybe even a little more. And when the guys gave him a turnbuckle, he hit that turnbuckle so hard. The ring would move about a foot, the entire ring. That's how hard he hit it. Well, you stand on on a rug and have somebody yank that rug out from under your feet. You're going to go flying. Right. So I would just naturally stand there. I wouldn't take a bump. I would just let the natural move. If he hit that corner, I would go flying. Whoa! I'd go flying through the ring and land on the back. I'm like, what the hell? That's, it wasn't to showboat. It was to put over that he was being flung into that ring so hard that it moved the whole ring. Absolutely. And uh, no other referee did that. It was just something that came natural. And after I came to Mid-Atlantic from IWA, we had a guy here that hit the, sur- the turnbuckle super hard. His name was Swede Hansen. and he was about the same age, or not age, but size as Eric. And he'd hit that turnbuckle, and the whole ring would move, and I'd go flying. And Swede loved it, so did Eric, because, hey... It's yeah. putting over how hard he's hitting the corner. Sure. Yet, uh, and and other things, you know, I go one, two, and then the guy get his shoulder up, and sometimes I'd slide my hand underneath and show you how much, how close it was, you know, a couple inches through. Something else. It just naturally happened. Never learned any of this stuff from anybody. Just uh, it, it just came to me. Different things as as time went by. Had a ball. I really did.
0: You're the first one I remember who uh, who would, because you had that NWA logo on your referee shirt, and when the, the heels or even the baby faces would, would get in your face, you're, I don't know if you're the first one to ever do it, but you're the first one that I remember to tug on that logo as if to say, uh, you know, I'm the referee, and if you want to work in this promotion, you know, you need to you know show me respect.
1: Well, you know most of these guys and another thing i did that other rep wrestlers or wrestlers referees didn't think of i thought the smaller i am the bigger they look right. so let's trim down because when i first came here i was about 212 pounds because i was still ref, wrestling just a teeny bit i just stopped doing it so I was big i was thick Well, I I went on that uh, low carb diet before it was popular. I went all the way down to 166. I was working out and I, I dropped about 40 pounds. And I thought, you look smaller they look bigger, that you're also in better condition. Because, I mean, if you worked a match with Flair and Steamboat, they were just getting going after 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. And they did tons of false finishes. You really were. Sometimes they'd go Broadway, which is another word for a draw, 60 minutes. Man, you worked. And I left it there. And and back then, when I first came here, we had a number of buildings that were super hot. We eventually went almost all... Coliseums, but oh, I remember the Richmond Arena. Oh, it was just, I'd be back, I, I would be soaked. Even my socks would be full of sweat. <laughs> I'd bring my socks out. I mean, uh, my clothes, I was completely wet from head to toe from just sweating. I mean, uh, you worked. And, and I, I always knew that the bottom line was entertainment. And I thought, well, you know, the refs should help too. The refs should be involved, and I feel, you know, as far as like the greatest referee and all that, who really knows? That's just an opinion, and everybody's got one of those. But um, I just wanted—I wanted to be the one that really, when I came out that door. I wanted to hear people mumble, oh, we got the real referee now, or, or, I mean, you might love me, you might hate me, and more often you're going to hate me than love me. I mean, that's the way the business was designed for the referees, mm. but but you weren't going to be bored by me. There's going to be action, and to me, that was very, the bottom the bottom line is entertaining those people. It's Absolutely. entertainment, whether it's a sporting event, a movie, uh, a play, anything, where you where you're paying your money, you're paying to be entertained some way, shape, or form.
0: Most people know guys are terrible at taking care of their health. Little known story, little inside baseball for you. When I first started at WCW, there was no trainers, nothing. Guys had their own tape. They had their own heating pads. And they would not go to the hospital unless something was broken. And now that's why you have the trainers that are all over WWE television. And it's not just wrestlers. It's all guys. But do not worry. Whether it's a knee injury, a bad back, or something worse. Hell, even a hangnail. Guys are usually more comfortable rubbing some dirt on it than seeing a doctor. I'm guilty of it. Every guy is guilty of it. Admit it now. We all suck at seeing the doctor. So good news for you. I'm going to help you out. Studies show that 70% of guys who experience erectile dysfunction don't get treated for it, and for many of the same reasons why the wrestlers never went to the doctor. Thankfully, Roman's created an easy way to get checked out by a doctor and get treated for ED, yes, online. Roman is a one-stop shop where licensed U.S. physicians can diagnose ED and ship medication right to your door. With Roman, there are no waiting rooms. I hate waiting rooms. Awkward face-to-face conversations or uncomfortable trips to the pharmacy. It's very simple. You can handle everything discreetly online. All you got to do is visit GetRoman.com slash ringside, fill out a brief medical onboarding, chat with a doctor, and get FDA-approved ED meds delivered to your door in discreet, unmarked packaging. See, I told you I could help. Guys, go online and get checked by a doctor. Erectile dysfunction is a problem that guys don't tackle because they don't want to go to the doctor. But with Romans, it's real easy, so take care of it. For a free online visit, go to GetRoman.com slash ringside. That's GetRoman.com slash ringside for a free online visit. Free, no money, Nada. No pesos. Free online visit. com slash ringside. Correct me if I'm wrong, but if I, the years uh, work, you really got to see Ric Flair come into Mid-Atlantic and, and really evolve into what he, 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 he's been famous for. Uh, tell me about that evolution.
1: I'm very fortunate in that I came along right at a really good time. I mean, guys like, you know, Dick Murdoch, Dusty Rhodes, The Funk... The Briscoes, Flair—I mean, all these guys were four, five, six years within each other. You know, right. uh, I was born in '47. Flair was born in '49. I think Steamboat '51. I think Hogan's about the same age as Steamboat. They're both from St. Petersburg, Florida, right. where uh, Buzz Sawyer is also from there too. Uh, you know, just just different guys, uh, and and. In in the case of Flair, I mean, he and I both broke in. I think it was 1973. He broke in in the Minnesota area. Uh, Did you see the uh, documentary on Flair on uh, ESPN? Not only did I see it, I
0: lived it for a couple of years in WCW. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, it was... I, I was really impressed with his honesty. Yes. In that. I mean, he was totally honest. Whereas the thing with Andre, I don't know if you saw that. Yes, sir. That wasn't totally honest. But but the Flair thing certainly was. Yeah. And, uh... He was just one of these guys. Uh, I came along. I was still in the IWA when they had the famous plane crash here in October of 75, when Johnny uh, Valentine's career ended. Uh, Flair uh, broke his back. Uh, David Crockett was in the plane. Uh, Tim Woods, Bob Bruggers. Uh, The pilot uh, was in a coma for many, many years before he finally died. Of course, Johnny Valentine was permanently crippled. Uh, Bruggers, I think, was okay, but I don't think he could uh, wrestle anymore. David Crockett was able to walk away from it, as was Tim Woods. Flair got a broken back, but he healed, and he was back within six months and, of course, became, in my opinion, the greatest performer of all time. So Flair was just coming along. He was actually here, and he was going to try to do a cowboy thing with a guy named Nelson Royal. And George Scott, who brought me in here, a man that I really love, he has passed away. Uh, He was close friends with uh, the original Nature Boy, a man named Buddy Rogers, who had worked this territory back in the the, uh, 60s. I think maybe even the 50s, because Buddy goes pretty far back. And Buddy came out of retirement, came in here, and he and George agreed to make Flair the new nature boy. That was actually a a creation of George Scott. Flair was going to be a cowboy. Oh, my God. And... (laughs) And and he wound up being the nature boy. And, and then he started using the figure four leg lock because that's what Buddy Rogers used to use. So Rick started using that because he didn't use that before he was the nature boy. And um, so he did that. And Flair was so good, so dedicated. Like I said, if you watch that documentary, it tells it all. He gave his life for wrestling. I mean, he, he really... Hurt his, you know, personal life with, with, with his marriages and stuff. Wrestling came first for him. I, I truly respect him for that. And uh, I've never seen a man work harder. The only guy that was in his age uh, work, uh, work bracket, so to speak, uh, would be Steamboat, in my opinion. Those two, and I just happen to be here. When Steamboat came in from Atlanta, this was, I think it was early 77. And Flair had just worked a program with Wahoo McDaniel in 76, which drew nothing but money. And it was in 77. uh, Actually, Ole was was, uh, the booker of the Georgia Championship Wrestling, didn't like Steamboat. And uh, sent him up here. And uh, I remember... Uh, the first match that I refereed him, we were in a town called Colonial Heights, Virginia, which is a suburb of Richmond, Virginia. Right. And Steamboat was wrestling a guy named Sergeant Jacques Goulet, who still lives in the area here in Charlotte. He's retired, still looks good, and uh, they were they wrestled twenty minutes through, just a Broadway, and the people went nuts. And I told George, because you talked about that word stooge earlier, and I got nailed with that title, too. I mean, pretty much all referees were. And I went back and told George, because I had to to, uh, stand uh, meet with him almost every day, go over the matches with him. Never did I have to work that way with anybody but George. He wanted to know everything that was going on. And I told him, whatever you did. do take a look at this kid steamboat, the people just went crazy, and they only went through a an a, a a draw a Broadway. you know how how can you get excited but the people just loved him. I never saw anybody sell like he did, and uh flair thought the same thing because I think George asked him what do he want to do uh for the next angle, you know, and give me this kid steamboat, and then they did the thing where Flair just rubbed his face across the floor, hard weighed him, rubbed all the skin off his face on the concrete. Oh, I know that hurt. But uh, those two, from 77, right up until I had to quit, God, so many matches that they did, and every one of them was a masterpiece. And I just thank God that I was just happened to be here at the right time. And uh, he had flair your top heel steamboat arguably arguably your top baby face and even more arguably he had Tommy Young the top referee remember I said that arguably no that's no a, I was that's an opinion no oh, yes it is was no, I, mean, I was not just, I was just
0: about to say that uh, with Steamboat and Flair both, but especially with Flair, uh, you guys are synonymous. I mean, but you know, there there could be a case. You know, Ric Flair was extremely talented, and and so was Ricky Steamboat. But there was a part that you played as a antagonist to Flair and a, and 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 being that person in the middle of the ring that uh, that really added to uh, their magic, and and it came together as uh, one magical, uh, usually an hour. Uh, or 45 minutes, but, uh, uh, the, you definitely not arguably, man, you, you, and I'm not kissing your ass just cause you're on my podcast. I'm being totally honest. There was, <laughs> there was, you know, it was, you were part of the magic for sure. Now, I just, I just got in.
1: I don't mean to interrupt you. I'm sorry, but sure. I I just got into them. And, I, from what, and then people would tell me, boy, your facial expressions are incredible. So I picked up on that and I made sure I was doing that because, I mean, like if it flare hauled off and chopped steam, I'd go, whoa, like that, you know, or, or steam would do it back on, whoa, and I'm selling as much as they are, but nobody didn't. Nobody said, hey, cut it out. Don't do that. Because if they did, I would have. My job is to make their job easier. (laughs) And we would do different things. I mean, there would be the thing in the corner, steamboats coming back. Time to hook that arm, Tommy. And Flair would nail steamboat. Of course, the crowd's going nuts. And Flair doesn't want the heat on me. And, of course, it is right there because I stop steamboat and Flair nails him. So what's Flair do? He shoves me. And then I shove them back. And that's when I point to the patch, right. meaning it ain't me that that's shoving you back. It's this patch. Because I know you can flatten me, it's the patch that's shoving you back. You know, absolutely, that's what it is. And there, there was an occasion he wouldn't do it very often. Once in a while, he'd even take a bump for me. I'd know when he wanted to do it because he'd shove me and then he'd start walking away real quick. And I thought, oh, he... so I'm shoving him from the side where his attention is not on me, because only you, because you know, only was the Booker a lot, and he would say that the referee should not be knocking down the world's champion so rick wouldn't do it directly but sometimes he'd take a bump for me and i'd usually i'd run behind steamboat you know like oh boy you know trying to put over that he could kill me if he wanted to and uh we'd do another thing where he'd grab an arm lock on a guy but he'd be close to the rope so i'd slide in underneath looking up at the guy you give up? While I'm doing that, Flair is reaching right over the top rope, and he's grabbing the rope for leverage. Right. And, of course, the fans are going nuts, and I'm I'm right by the rope because Flair is holding it, you know. So I'll look at the fans. What's the matter? They're pointing. Well, Flair knows I'm going to look, so he takes his arm down. I look up, there's nothing there. What are you talking about? <laughs> so i go back to it, you know, and sometimes he let me catch him. Sometimes he wouldn't. And, and you know, if the, bat, and if the good guy, if the baby face was going over, I'd try to let that heel get away with as much stuff as I could. Because the fans are going to get their cookies in the end. Sure. It's psychology. You, you, I, I had a talent. And I don't mean to to brag. It's tough to say that without sounding like it's bragging. But I feel I had a talent to read the people pretty well because, uh, you know, the referee, he controls everything. Sure. People used to ask me, did you know what was going on? I said, well, of course I did. (laughs) If I didn't know, I'd screw the whole thing up Sure. because my word is law in there. And I would tell the guys, break on four. Because if I get to five and you still got that hold, I gotta DQ you. The people are looking right at it. Sure. If you're down and I go one, two, don't try to cut it too close.
0: And how many times did Flair Guess do that?
1: that? <laughs> oh, I, I ever counted Rick out, but I counted out Valentine one time. Wow. And oh, what are you doing? That's not the finish. <laughs> uh, well, he wouldn't break the hold. And the magic number is five. That part of the shoot. Hey, Hey, you didn't break. Match is over. But I would whisper to the baby face, don't take it. So I raise his hand, no, I don't want to win this way. No, he's DQ'd, you're the winner. No, no, please, come on. And then we appeal to the people. No, no, we don't want, okay, ring the bell. So I get out of it. I'm able to put over the fact that he was DQ'd, but we can continue the match, you know. Because some guys would take advantage of me. We had a guy named Austin Idol, and he would never break when he was supposed to, and I thought he's just messing with me. And uh, so, you know, different guys were wonderful in there. Other guys gave me a hard time. Just depended on who it was. Just like anything else. Sure.
0: Sounds like you were choreography. You're the choreographer of the dance a lot of the times.
1: Run that by me again.
0: Sounds like you were the choreographer to the dance many times.
1: Well, maybe you give me a little too much credit. No,
0: there, but. but- you know, you're whispering but to you this know, guy and whispering to this guy and DQ. Well, there, re- no, there
1: wasn't much of that. I mean, I didn't talk to them much a little bit, but I mean, you know, you could have fun. We were in the ring one time in Norfolk and uh, Blackjack got in the ring and he was one of his silly moods. So he puts his hat on me, his cowboy hat. <laughs> So I, so I put my my two fingers inside my belt, you know, like a cowboy, and I'm going, well, I'm an old call hen <laughs> from the Rio Grande, and the mulligan yanks the hat off of me, and <laughs> puts it back on. I'm like, what are you doing? Uh, well, I guess that's it, folks, and the audience would love it. Courses, yeah. but before the match is started, you know you get away with that stuff once the match starts, well, then it gets all serious. Oh, it was so much fun down through the years. yeah I can hear oh, i can hear like a, I, yeah,
0: I can hear it in your voice there you- you oh, told yeah. a story in chicago re, uh recently about a one uh, certain flare steamboat match that went uh that got a little oh, oh, ugly, no. so I was wondering if yeah. if you might if you might um uh uh Tell that story to the great fans of City Ringside.
1: You know, I often wonder, what, does this aggravate Flair telling this story? Because I don't mean to aggravate him. I tell this story.
0: To... Hey, Tommy, not to interrupt you, I can assure you yeah. that Rick Flair does not listen to this podcast. He's okay, a he's a good I mean, friend, he's you know. a good friend of mine and 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 you know at least when I used to see him before he God bless he had his uh, his his health situation but before that uh, he'd always buy me a drink. We're, we're not friends anymore either. He ar- used to be my best friend. Yeah, I know.
1: And now on. I, I can't. Look at no, now but I can now, assure
0: but, you that 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 I I don't know who does and who doesn't but I can assure you that Ric Flair does not listen to this podcast so I, he, he will not hear the story.
1: Well, I will be brief on it because I told it to Tony on his podcast. But it was a situation in Charlotte where Flair and Steamboat wrestled. And Flair must have eaten too close to the matches. (laughs) Steam slammed him and uh, he had an accident, you know. And I mean, you know, uh, if you really want to be honest about it, I think just about every one of us at one time or another has accidentally crapped his pants. I know I have. I'm trying to get home from shows. I I'm trying to get to, because everybody likes their own toilets, sure. you know, you know. But, and and there are times I, I, I didn't make it and I had an accident, you know. But it can happen. It almost never does. That's the only time that did happen in my entire career. But uh, Flair was wearing pink. And anyway, after he had that, that, accident they wrestled for seven or eight more minutes. Remember when I was talking about Jones and he didn't care about whether he gave the people their their money or not? Sure. You know, Flair could Flair could have panicked. Most guys would have panicked. I probably oh, God, let's go, let's go. And, you know, the guy you're working with is going to be happy to go, too, because he don't want to deal with that. But Steamboat didn't say a word. But, I mean, it got to smelling pretty bad. But it wasn't time. They wrestled seven or eight more minutes before they went. So that has nothing to do with trying to embarrass Flair. I'm trying to say Flair was so dedicated to the people and to the fans, and that particular night we had about 10,000 people. The place was packed. And uh, he wouldn't go. It, it, It wasn't time. And Steamboat wasn't going to say anything. He went right along with it. Now, mind you, not everybody in the building knew what was going on. You couldn't tell if you were way up in the balcony or something. Right. But the but the people, some of the people at ringside did because the smell started getting to them. <laughs> and Flair was wearing pink. So uh, that didn't help either. There was a you know, little smell. Blotching his seat, so to speak, but some people knew what was going on, and of course, people were telling behind them. Some people were pointing. You know, people close by could—they knew, but not everybody in the building did. Maybe by the end of the night, most of them did. The way I'm sure everybody would be talking. But uh, that's just a tribute to Flair's uh, professionalism. Absolutely, that he—he he, he embarrassed himself just because he would not shortchange the fans. That's what a pro this man was. Uh, there was the incident with Nikita where Flair uh, suplexed him and Nikita's genitalia came out.
0: Oh, uh, I never heard that. that one. And
1: he's, uh, oh, yeah, this was at the Great American Bash in Charlotte. And Flair uh, had him up for a suplex, and all Nikita wore was that, you know, that thing with the strap over the shoulder. He didn't wear anything under that. Uh, not not all the mids Some guys wear two, poor, two pair of tights. Other guys didn't wear anything but one pair. It just depended on who it was. Right. But Flair had uh, Flair had uh, Nikita up in the air for a suplex, and you know right. Flair would hold you up there for a few seconds. Right. And his genitalia came out, and I'm oh jeez. <laughs> so down he went with the suplex. Boom, and they both laid there. And I figured Nick would cover himself up. He didn't. He laid there selling. <laughs> So I I thought, well, either he doesn't realize he's exposed or he just doesn't give a damn and he's selling. So I ran over there real quick and pulled his tights, you know, over his Peter. You know, I mean, it's it's one thing to show somebody's fanny, but the front is a different story completely. And, you know, this is family entertainment. That's not good. You you don't want that. So, uh, yeah, and, and so I, I covered him up. You know, I figured, hell, somebody's got to do it. He ain't doing it. Flair's not going to do it. I'm not sure Flair ever, ever, ever knew the guy was exposed, but people at the audience did. Crazy things happen in this profession like they do everywhere else, Bro, Absolutely.
0: <laughs> were, were you the first person to... Uh, to hold the ropes for Rick when he was world champion and he would come in?
1: Yes, that was another thing that just started happening. I don't know how it did. All of a sudden, it just did. And, uh, and not just Rick. I would do that for any world champion. I did it for Ronnie Garvin. Uh, you know, any world champion, I would do that out of respect. But it was mostly Flair because he had the belt most of the time. Right. Yeah, that, that was another thing. That was another thing. And uh, sometimes Flair would get the figure four on a guy, and I'd get in the guy's face. Do you give up? Do you give up? Flair's holding the ropes behind me for extra leverage. Or J.J. is pulling on Flair for extra leverage. Anything, you know, to give the, give the fans a night, you know, uh, that somebody's cheating, the referee's blind as a bat. And, uh, but, but you try, you really try to act like you try to, to catch them, but you telegraph it. Right. Like when I was going to put a guy out in a tag team match, when when I would put the baby face out, I would telegraph it slowly turning, keep looking at him and turning back towards the action to tell the guys, I'm getting ready to turn around, so quit doing whatever you're doing because I'm, I'm going to be looking. Because you don't want to catch him. If you catch him, you got to do something. But if you don't catch him and you don't break him, the people think, damn it that sneaky bastard <laughs> gene anderson and i'm sorry if i said that i apologize oh that no 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 gene anderson one thing he would do the fans would be getting on me you stupid ass you queer bastard they call me everything in the book uh, of course call me number one by the middle finger of course <laughs> uh, and so <laughs> and what gene would do He'd start agreeing with him. Yeah, you're right. He sucks, doesn't he? He <laughs> stinks. But uh, wait a minute! I ain't arguing. I'm not agreeing with you. He's all right. You're, he'd get the heat back on himself. The fans didn't want to. They didn't want to agree with him. So they started sympathizing with me. Because I'm telling you, it, it, different guys did different stuff.
0: God bless was, Jane was, Anderson.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, he was something. So, Looked look like about thirty miles of gravel road, but he was breaking great performer. <laughs> really, uh, you pretty much with, nailed with, it. with holes in it, with, yeah. with potholes too. Yeah. Oh.
0: Talk. talk to, I'm, I uh, know this isn't a, a, a positive memory, but talk to me about uh, your injury. If I remember correctly, it was pretty yeah, much. A just I knew fu- that was oh, coming. Just yeah. a fluke, huh?
1: Well, we we were, we we were doing TV uh, at Center Stage in Atlanta. And, you know, anybody can see that. All they got to do is look up uh, the website, Tommy Young, and, and uh, they got the, they got the thing on YouTube. You can see the match. You don't actually see me get hurt. You see me get tripped and go out of the picture, and then they put the camera on me laying there. But it, it wasn't even supposed to be a finish. This was just supposed to be a high spot. It was a situation where uh, 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 Tommy was working with uh, Mike Rotunda, uh, he used to call himself IRS, Michael Wall Street, right. good guy. Uh, anyway, uh, Mike was the bad guy. He was uh, in this thing called the Varsity Club, I think, at the time, with Sullivan and and the Steiners, and I think Steve Williams was in it, too, Dr. Death. Yeah. Um, the, the thing was, um, and this was Corny's finish. Blair was the booker, and, and Jim Cornette, my old buddy Corny, he was the assistant. Corny set this up. Now, if you throw the guy over the top rope in WCW, it's automatic if the referee sees it. Throw him over the top rope, that's right. automatic DQ. Well, they wanted to do that in the match, but they didn't want me to see it. So what we were going to do... Uh, and if you, you you watch it sometime, you you'll see what I'm talking about. Once time to go. Uh, Tommy's really getting on Mike in the room. Yeah, bang, bang, bang. Just and I'm trying to get him off, and finally I do, and I really start giving Tommy shit, and I'm walking him backwards. Once again, watch my language. I'm sorry.
0: Oh no, no, uh, no. It's fine. Well, hey, well, we had Rip walking, Ro- we had Rip Rogers on for about an hour and a half uh, a couple well, of times. I'm not as
1: bad as Rip. Oh no, uh, Rip no, Roller no. There's nobody.
0: <laughs> the only person. No, there's nobody as bad as Rip Rogers. Uh, and Corny's well,
1: up there. We My love Corny. Yeah,
0: we like had that. Corny. We had Corny on the two, but uh, but Rip is uh, is f bomb every third word, and and uh, and and it was fine. So I will don't not ap-
1: use that. Word, don't not, not in this. Don't not apologize. This.
0: Though. Do so you're getting up okay, in well, uh,
1: anyway.
0: Tommy shit.
1: Well, anyway, yeah. So I, I I finally get Tommy off mic, and I'm really backing towards the audience well Mike's coming up Tommy's looking over his shoulder at Mike when Mike gets to his feet Tommy was supposed to just shove me in the back like get out of my way just keep shoving me the same way I'm going like sidestep me and push me like get out of here and goes to Mike all I was supposed to do was lose my balance a little bit, fall into the ropes maybe anything momentarily uh, to distract me and then of course Tommy goes for Mike, and Mike dumps him over the top. And I turn around, and Tommy ain't there. He's on the floor. I'm not supposed to see it. That was the whole idea of the spot. Sure. What happened was, and you'll see this, Tommy has very big feet. And uh, when I was walking him backwards, he somehow... I think he stepped on my foot. I always thought he tripped me, but my brother said he stepped on your foot. But either way, he shoved me while he he tripped me or stepped on my foot, so I was out of control, and the ropes were close by because I had been backing him up. Right. So I, I was falling forward and down, and I tried to grab the rope to protect my face. My arms went through the rope, and I took the middle rope right between my eyes, that indentation there. Yeah. A little higher up in the forehead, it would have slid off or lower, maybe broken my Adam's apple. But, but this did it perfectly where it snapped my neck back, and I heard this... <laughs> and, and my, my neck I remember hitting the rope and then I remember crashing to the mat and I was facing the audience I was on my side and they'll show that that I'm facing away from them well anyway I, I remember thinking my god did everybody else hear what I just heard and the whole room was just humming and I didn't feel anything from the neck down there was oh no god. pain I was like I I was I was asleep. Uh, I'm telling my body move, and my body my body's saying bleep you. We're not going anywhere. And uh, I knew I was hurt bad. I knew I was hurt badly because nothing like that had ever happened. And uh, what and you know when Mike got to his feet, when Tommy did what he did, he stepped in between me and and Mike so that Mike didn't see me. Because Tommy was in the way and Tommy didn't see it because he's facing Mike. He didn't know he did anything either. So they continue to work. And then you see Mike cover Tommy and I'm not there. And you see Mike get off Tommy and he'll kick me in the ass, like, get over here. And I'm whispering, trying to whisper, Mike, I can't move. So he gets off the of Tommy and rolled me over on my back and said, what's the matter? I said, I don't know. I can't move anything. Well, by now, they're catching on in the back that something's wrong. They got the little TV sets that they're using because we're taping. Right. and that they're called monitors. And they realize, Tommy's not moving. What's the matter? And the lights also go dim. You'll see that if you watch it on, on on, YouTube. The lights got dim. I'm not sure if that was the reason that I missed the rope or not. I, I got a small settlement in the building, but it was only a couple thousand dollars. But anyway... Um, uh, so they realized there's something wrong. So Nick Patrick, who was rapping at the time, and, and his, his uh, brother-in-law, Mike Adkins, both came to the ring. Uh, Nick uh, came to me. Mike went in to finish the match. Right. And uh, I said, Nick, get me away from here. Get me at least out on the apron. Pull me away. So they finished the match. And uh, I was sitting on the apron where, you know, the tape had shut off. Flair came out. And uh, started pinching me. Champ, I can feel the pinches. I, I, I'm getting the feeling. The feeling's coming back. I'm okay. So I went to jump off the apron to get out. My legs collapsed, but the oh, guys caught me. To make a long story short, they had to lay my whole spine open from the neck down to midway to my shoulder blades. It's about an 8-inch incision and simply remove all that vertebrae and uh so the vertebrae that protects the spine I don't have it there anymore oh my so goodness. goodbye career because the doctor told me I remember sitting in the hospital bed and the doctor came in and uh said no you'll have to get away from the pounding and I said doc I am a professional wrestling referee I cannot Get away from the pounding. My job is as such that I have to get my ass kicked every once in a while. It's a rough business I'm in. Uh, he said, you have to understand. I've taken, we, we had to remove the vertebrae. It just exploded and went everywhere. It was pushing up against your spine, and that's why you were so weak. And uh, he said, if you get hit there, you could be totally quadriplegic. That's when it hit me. Oh, my God. Brother. You are done. You can't get back in the ring with that kind of danger. Besides, no promotion would ever let me get in the ring anyway. They're not going to be responsible. So, after 15 years, and it's, it's ironic because what is today? What is the actual date today?
0: The date we're taping this is November 29th.
1: Okay. Yesterday was the anniversary. It's been 29 years. It happened November the 28th, 1989. It's been 29 years since that happened. That's why I'm really surprised that anybody even knows me anymore. Oh. I mean, after all, I wasn't a wrestler, really. I My notoriety was as a ref. How many people remember the refs, you know? So I'm, well, I'm fortunate you, in
0: that regard. You were special. Hey, I always wondered, did they offer you a job as an agent to stay or work in the it's office? It's ironic.
1: Well, I, I went back there and uh, I talked to the man that was running things, a man named Jim Hurd. Oh, but, Jesus. You know, it, well, you know, he was always nice to me. I've got to go by that. And, but you're right, he didn't belong in the profession. He, he was in pizzas. That's what he was in. But anyhow, uh, I told him, I said, you know, Jim, you guys want to give me a job? I mean, I have a lot of knowledge of the profession. I mean, this wasn't like, you know, Terry Allen. And I don't want to knock Terry. Terry's a great guy. But But, you know, Terry wrapped his car around a telephone pole and kind of did to himself what happened. In my case, I was given my body to somebody, and he crippled me. Right. So I was hurt on the job. You know, you give your your body to your opponent. We all work together, and you take care of each other. And you know, Tommy didn't take care of me, and goodbye career. So they heard actually suggested. He said, "If I were you, Tommy." I'd sue," he said. "We, you're not going to get heat with us. We have attorneys, and and you have a legitimate case. I think you should sue. You'd be better off." I said, "My God, the guy's telling me to sue him." So uh, I did sue. Got a small settlement, but I lost probably about a million dollars and lost wages. It it was tough, but you know, life goes on, and I'm I. Uh, I, I got a, a basically normal life it could have been so much worse but by the grace of God uh, I'm, I'm okay I just you know just can't really get back in the ring anymore I mean a lot of careers don't even last 15 years mm-hmm. and then you can be like Earl Hebner who only recently retired and he's only a couple of years younger than me and uh, Earl Earl lasted about forty years. He did. And he had some he had some difficult uh, physical situations too. But he's as legendary as they come. Probably more so than me. He was certainly around a lot longer. Uh, he was. And, uh, he was I part. Him, at, I saw him at Wrestlecade, and I saw him in uh, Chicago too. Uh, uh, not Chicago, but the town above Chicago that you talked about earlier. What, what were you
0: saying? I call it uh, Chicago. It was Schaumburg, but I call it Chicago. Um, mm. He was. He was known because of the the uh, the Andre twin angle uh, with Hulk, yeah. and also and also Wasn't the uh, and also the Bret Hart oh. angle uh, that he probably doesn't want to oh, be known yeah. for. Oh, so.
1: that was a tall oh god! you don't want to be in that's a situation no referee no. wants to be in. Uh. And I mean, I hope to God Bret didn't hold it against Earl because what's Earl going to do? Defy Vince? Yeah I mean I think, I'd rather I'd rather have Pete with Bret Hart than Vince McMahon
0: <laughs> you know I think so, Brett did for a while and then got over it but uh but yeah it was yeah. I, I don't think that it was so much uh, he was mad at Earl Hebner I think he uh, he spent a lot of time just angry at the whole situation and I think he finally realized life's too short to uh to well, to
1: Didn't he didn't he hit Vince? Didn't he hit him? Apparently yeah apparently it's on video I think he hit him yeah, I think he did, and and uh, but yeah, that situation, and now the, the the angle with Andre and Hulk that was brilliant, and Earl was here. He was yeah. my deputy with WCW, and he never said a word to me. And <laughs> you know, after they did it, and he was gone, he called me, Tommy. I just couldn't tell you. I couldn't. I couldn't take a chance. I said, of course you couldn't. I could have slipped, and it would have screwed everything up because Crockett says to. Me, what'd you think of that shit, Tommy? <laughs> Crockett expected me to knock it. I said, What a brilliant, brilliant <laughs> angle. It was, it was classic. It was. And it had me fooled. And I mean, David was heavier than Earl. Yeah. There was a definite difference between them, but not in the face. But if you're not looking for Earl, sure. I was looking right at Earl and. Didn't even realize it. I thought I was looking at David. Yeah. But then, of course, David hit the ring at the end, and then Earl kicked the shit out of him, and and uh, and and got thrown out of the ring. Earl did, and it was thrown too hard and split his skull open. And but Earl's a pro, and yeah. uh, he he just got stitched up, got a little extra money, and everything was okay, and he had a great career. And then they unceremoniously dumped both him and David but uh earl went on to do well in tna and he's doing well now yeah i work with him a good friend always will be
0: work with him in tna hey how does it feel that Mm -hmm. so many uh referees over the years have patterned themselves after you it must be a pretty cool feeling and and i was thinking one that comes to mind and and i probably uh i i would think that you're aware of him is uh was mark curtis were you uh aware of mark curtis Brian Hildebrand? Brian Hildebrand. Yeah. Brian. Yeah, yeah. He, he, yeah
1: he, he had a health situation, unfortunately. Yeah. He died a few years ago. I never really thought that that many people copied my style. I mean, different people picked up different things. We had a kid here named Paul Lee, and he absolutely mimicked flair. Everything. Right. To the point where, when you saw Lee, you saw Flair, you don't want that. You want your own style. You sure. know, I would tell guys that said, "Do you want to pick up a thing or two from me? Do it because I picked up things from other referees. I've done it myself, but don't pattern yourself after somebody. That's not good." One of the most uh, talented guys, really, that I knew was a guy named Dick Slater, who recently passed away. Yes, sir. And he idolized Terry Funk. But it got to the point Dickie was working exactly the way Terry was. You saw Terry, you saw Dickie. You don't want that. Dickie's good enough. He doesn't need to to, to just mimic Terry. He's good enough to have his own, uh, you know, style. Right. But Dickie did fall into that trap to a degree, and I, I think it hurt him. Uh, But, yeah, uh, yeah, like I said, I don't know that a lot of guys have really patterned themselves after me. Uh, The one kid up in WWF who I think is really good, I forget his name. I'm not talking about Charles Robinson because he's very good, too, and he's still a friend of mine. But it's the other kid. I think his name is Mike. Chioda? Uh, Mike, that's him. Mike, uh, to me, Mike, and, and, you know, I love Charles but I think Mike's the best referee around. I've watched him, and he and I, I think I've told him this. He's a nice guy, though I haven't seen him in a, go- a good while. But I've watched him, and that kid's good. Robbie is, too. Robbie had the chance to be the junior nature boy. Remember when he did that? When he was uh, yeah. uh, a young, uh, when he was Rick Rick's little uh, partner. So, uh, But but I I told him, I said, well, little you, know, you got Chip. to do that. But, hey, just but to- you never got... Go ahead.
0: Just think Tommy if uh if 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 you'd have, uh, stayed around you might have been able to be little Nate.
1: Uh well come on. I mean Robbie <laughs> does the same thing the champ. Charles. He dyes his hair. Charles. And, you know, I'm I'm not going to do that. Yes. And besides he actually looked a little bit like. No, hair. I know. I, mean, I, there
0: was a, I used to travel with him and he's a good guy. He's a, a very one of the nicest people in the business. As are you. Hey to, to wrap things up, and I appreciate your time and your stories. Uh, uh, I could talk to you forever. Um, and uh, you, you, you mentioned earlier that uh, it amazes you that so many people still remember. Tell, tell me a little bit about how how, that, how much that means to you when you go to a Starcast or a WrestleCade, and and so many people still remember st- what your work from, you know, the eighties.
1: Well, you know, when I go to these things, and I don't go to them too much anymore, I don't get asked much, and I I'm, I'm, don't expect to, but I love the fans the fans were our people and I totally respect them and I think it shows Uh, I mean if I'm coming in I'll stop and I'll talk to anybody I'll pose with a picture I have a drink with somebody I, I don't put myself on a pedestal Because I'm just a human being like anybody else. There's nothing special about me. I just happen to have TV time, and people think you're a celebrity if you're on TV. And frankly, I don't think just because you're on TV, I don't think that that's what a celebrity makes. But to a lot of people it is, and I probably got more TV time than Gilligan's Island. Yeah. But that, that, And I know that part of the reason that they remember me is, is Vince's 24-hour wrestling network. Uh, he's got that, and you can subscribe to it. And he bought all the old tapes from Turner, the sure. tapes that we never got any royalties for which really stunk, but I don't think that's ever going to happen. That's part of it. I mean, a couple of years ago, I was at the Detroit Zoo. I was up in Detroit to see my boys, and uh, we were at the zoo, and this kid, about 25, come to me, are you Tommy Young? Wow. I said, you know who I am? He says, Yeah, God, I used to love the referee, the way you used to referee. I said, I've been gone longer than you've been alive, young man. How do you know me? He said, Oh, it's the wrestling network. I I get to, and, and I get people that. Well, everybody tells me to get on Facebook and and and, but I won't go near the computer except to play solitaire. I'm scared of it, <laughs> and I really don't want to talk to people on Facebook or anything. I probably could be doing that all day. You could, but it's just it's just something I don't really want to do. I I don't want to do podcasts. I mean, my own. I'll do them another. You know, I did one with Corny, and I did Tony Shabani's Flair, and I were supposed to it. We never did it. Um I I don't know about that. But, I mean, when I go to these things, I just like the people. And and I don't try to, I'm not going to mention names again, but some of these guys, they try to get every single nickel out of these fans that they can. (laughs) And, I mean, they pay a lot of money just to get in these buildings, and everybody's selling stuff, and people are spending tons of money. And uh, I don't know. I, it's not like, oh, Tommy, can I have your autograph? Yeah, that'll cost you 10 bucks. A lot of guys do that. I won't do that. I'm not going to do that. I, I love those fans. Yep. And they seem to like me. They sure didn't like me during my career. But uh, one fan I remember saying, Tommy Young was there, and he had a smile on his face from the time he walked in to the time he left. And that's the way it should be. We should be nice to those people. They were the ones that made us. Their money going to the turnstiles what paid us. Don't don't treat them like they're dirt. And I never did that and I will not. And uh, when I was working for the Crockett's, we were doing a thing where people were calling in on the iPhone or something. And I was, you know, answering their questions. I, I love doing that. Uh, me and Corny have done like a Johnny Carson, Ed McMahon thing uh, where I would go through the audience, you know, getting questions for Corny. We've done that at several of the fan fests here. I love talking to the people i love talking now i don't have any difficulty with it you give me a microphone i'll talk for four or five (laughs) hours i mean there are so many things i can talk about uh we could go on and on and on and on and on uh and and you'll forget about stuff that well the next time you'll try to tell it or you know there are so many things that i've forgotten about and they come to you at a later date, but, uh, but I have enjoyed this and, uh, God anybody that, that, that's listening to this, I hope that I uh, entertained you at least to a degree. You got to be kind of old if, if you used to watch me cause it's been 29 years myself, I'm 71 years old and, uh, shucks for, for six years there, I, I, uh, for extra money i I delivered pizzas, and I remember sitting at that table, signing autographs, thinking, these people think you are something special, and you are a pizza delivery man <laughs> hey you gotta, I mean, think about it got earn uh,
0: a, you got earn, earn a living uh,
1: well it, it's all in the eyes of the beholder sure I mean sure. you know one man's meat is another man's poison. But uh, I I did what I had to do to make a living. And there are some guys, once again, I will not mention names, that once they can't wrestle anymore, they don't know what to do. Hey, you go back to work. It's just a phase of your life that I went through, but it's over. Life goes on. Yep. You know, it doesn't stop just because you're gone. So uh, I drove a parts truck. I wanted to make extra money. I delivered pizzas. I wasn't proud. I wasn't. I, I mean, well, maybe not to a, to a degree, but I'm always flattered when anybody talks to me because I ain't no better than anybody else. And and it's nice to be remembered. It truly is.
0: Yeah, tumbling. Hmm. Hey, last, last question. Uh, would you hmm. agree with me that the greatest building... Uh, not size-wise or, uh, or acoustics, but the greatest building as far as the fans' reaction is the township in Columbia, South Carolina?
1: Close. That's oh! one of them. It's, I would say the one that really I love most of all Was the one in Spartanburg? It's it's a complex. There's there's a theater there, but we were actually downstairs. You could have fifty people in that building; it would sound like five hundred. Five hundred would sound like five thousand. The acoustics are so good. But let me tell you, any place in South Carolina, it seemed like South Carolina they reacted the most. Yep. North Carolina. In the middle, Virginia, the least. The further you went north, the less they got into it. But, but I agree with you. Columbia, I think it's Columbia County Township. Is that what it is? The That's just called the Columbia. township.
0: It's called the Township Auditorium when I used to play. It. And that uh, was
1: an excellent. That yeah. was an excellent building. Greenville, before they changed it to the Bilo Center, the old Greenville building was You're great. Right. Yeah. Charleston that dumpy building in Charleston was great for for the fans uh, but but Columbia was way up there I agree with
0: you it wasn't Columbia big...
1: was unique
0: go ahead oh you're good. Well, go ahead go ahead cuz it had the stage correct
1: Yeah, it was different because you only had like about five or six rows of ringside between the ring and the stage. Right. And then, of course, on the side, and then the balcony was way up high. So the ring wasn't completely surrounded because you had the stage there. But it was a very good building. And uh, had a lot of good shows there. Uh, loved going there. Yeah, yeah. And, and we had the uh, the bigger building for the bigger matches. But the best, uh, that was one of the very good buildings. Uh, uh, Fayetteville in North Carolina had a good building. Uh, and like I said, there was a lot of good ones. The Richmond Arena, before we became the, just the Richmond Coliseum, that was a good building. But you're right. Columbia was right up there at the top. The only one that might have been better was Spartanburg. And go. I say might have. So, you know, <laughs> but I, I love doing them all. I love doing them hey, all. Hey,
0: thank you so much for your time and the stories and, and your honesty. And I really appreciate it. I'm sure the fans will as well. All right, my friend. Hey, great talking to you. Thank you so much. Uh, have, a, have a happy holidays to you and your family. and uh, And hopefully we we'll catch up down the road. Thank you Dave Merry thank Christmas you. you too Great stuff want to thank Tommy Young once again For his time Very generous with his time And uh, great stuff uh, Great Ric Flair stories Great Jim Crockett promotion stories uh, Enjoyed his take on Earl Hebner And the angle with uh, Andre the Giant And Ted DiBiase And Hulk Hogan and uh, one of these days we're going to get Ted back on and do a full interview with him. I, every time I hit him up, it's the worst week possible, and uh, he has fourteen engagements in one week. But uh, we'll keep we'll keep bugging him, so to speak. Uh, speaking about bugging, uh, be sure to bug me on Twitter at David Penzer, all one word at Penzer Ringside, the side of the show. Uh, be sure to let me know what you think about uh, current day, state of professional wrestling, hey, you can let me know what you think about the green character gimmick that uh, that Daniel Bryan has that we talked about at the beginning of the podcast. So, uh, at David Penzer, all one word, and uh, always available to chat and answer questions and uh, and uh, talk wrestling. So Or sit ringside, so to speak. So, until next week, ladies and gentlemen, as the countdown to 2019 continues... We'll see you next time on City Ringside. Follow David Penzer on Twitter at David Penzer. Also make sure to follow the show on Twitter at Penzer Ringside. You've been Sitting Ringside with David Penzer on Radio Influence. holiday season is upon us and we know how hard it can be to find that perfect gift so we're investigating the best gift ideas for the weekend warrior the athlete or general health nut on your gift list this season we'll look at the coolest gadgets the newest equipment the latest technology and we'll reveal the crush top 10 gift ideas for 2015 so join us as we kick off the holiday season on crush performance Crush Performance, your weekly source for sport performance and athletic development information. If you're a serious athlete, a weekend warrior, parent, or coach, join us each week as we investigate the latest trends and research coming out of the sport performance world. We'll visit with top athletes, coaches, and sports scientists to keep you on the cutting edge and to find out what it truly takes to achieve human maximum performance. You can visit us online at CrushPerformance.com and Crush Performance Radio with me, Jeff Kershaw, can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and at Radio Influence.